0: It is appropriate on Easter Sunday not only to say the Lord I'm sorry the Apostles' Creed as a confession of our common faith but also in recognition of the fact that this particular creed is a celebration of resurrection faith a belief in the God who raises the dead twice In this confession, we confess first the resurrection of Jesus. The third day, he rose again from the dead. And then we affirm about ourselves, I believe, in the resurrection of the body. Not only the resurrection of Christ, but our own resurrection at the last day. And to add... To our understanding of the Christian faith as a resurrection faith, I could have turned your attention to the Nicene Creed, which is probably in some of the hymnals, not all of them, we have it on the front cover, pasted in, a side of our hymnals, and that, that Nicene Creed was intended to particularly add another statement, a fuller statement about, I believe in the Holy Spirit, not just to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, But to say something more about the Spirit, because in the time of the uh, the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, which is called, that was the thing that was most being discussed, is that the Church felt it needed to say something more about the Holy Spirit. You know what it said about the Holy Spirit? It says He's the Lord and Giver of life. And in a real sense, we could say that all the persons of the Trinity also could be called Lord and Giver of Life. We serve a God who is the Lord and Giver of Life, who has raised our Lord Jesus from the dead and will raise the bodies of all who have died. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. But you know, there are people that actually will tell us that most of our Bibles don't acknowledge resurrection faith at all. They would tell us our Old Testaments are pretty much silent upon the subject of the resurrection. And if we find resurrection appearing anywhere in our Old Testaments, it's probably something that got inserted from a later period of time. The idea is that uh, the Jews got the notion of resurrection and a bunch of other ideas they call late ideas from the time of their captivity, and they probably learned it from the Persians that's one of the reasons that this passage I read to you in Isaiah and I told you chapter 24 to chapter 27 gets called an apocalyptic is because that also comes from a late period they would say well Isaiah of Jerusalem never wrote this but you know in reality the faith of the people of God in all generations worshipped and served the God who is the giver of life and the God for whom death is never the final word and while it's true as the New Testament tells us in Paul's letter to Timothy, that light, I'm sorry, that life and immortality has come to light through the gospel. In other words, it's more clearly seen, because Jesus has come in history and has broken the bands of death asunder. He's rose triumphant from the tomb, as we've sung. So it's clearer than it ever was in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament. Is devoid of the teaching of a God who raises the dead. In fact, as we saw in Sunday school, Paul argues that's precisely the faith that Abraham possessed. He possessed a faith in a God who raises the dead because you look at his body that was dead. He's not bearing children, he's not begetting children. He sees his wife, her womb's dead, she's not giving birth to children. And yet, God said, You haven't children. God says you can be a daddy of Abraham, and not only a daddy, you're going to be a father of a multitude of nations. How does that happen? Well, the God who raises the dead is able to bring that to bring that to pass. And he did. He did. And so the gospel that Paul preached, which he says he received, and in which you stand, was a gospel that said Christ died for our sins according to what? The scriptures. And he meant the Old Testament Scriptures. That he was raised again from the dead the third day. And what does he say about that? According to the Scriptures. And the church preached the resurrection of Jesus from the Scriptures. Jesus showed them from the Law the Prophets and the Psalms. All these things concerning himself. That the Christ would suffer and would rise from the dead. He would enter into his glory. And so we're not surprised that Isaiah of Jerusalem... An 8th century B.C. prophet brings a message in the midst of his prophecy in which the theme of resurrection comes to be front and center. I read you the passages in chapter 25 and 26. This morning I want particularly to look at the one in chapter 25. Verses 6 to 9, let me read it to you. Let me tell you what I hope to tell you about it. And then let me tell you about it. And then, hopefully, I can tell you we're done and dismissed with God's blessing. Let's begin to read. Verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. I want to tell you something this morning about this passage in terms of who it was that were the recipients of these words, to whom these words were spoken. Then I want to say something about the words themselves, in terms of they, how they provide a remedy for the human condition. So, we have words spoken to a people in a particular, in a specific condition. And that condition is they're all under judgment. They're all under judgment. And God speaks a word that remedies that picture of judgment. And then we have an expression of what is the appropriate response to what God remedies in terms of the human condition these recipients had which was the condition of being under the judgment of God let's begin with the recipients if anybody here has ever studied the book of Isaiah you will know it tells us a lot about judgment it tells us distressingly a lot about judgment We like to pick out the messianic passages that tell of Jesus. We like to pick out the praises and the psalms and the celebrations that are found. And there's much to be found along those lines. But there's also the reality that Isaiah speaks to a people under judgment. It begins in chapter 1. With the word that Isaiah the prophet speaks. Look at it in chapter 1. We read about the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of four kings that are mentioned, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all of these kings of Judah. And you begin to read about what God says about the people that inhabited this city, that inhabited Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Judah. They were rebellious children. They were children that didn't know where its good came from. They didn't recognize the Lord. They were a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. And he goes and he begins to specify their sins. He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. So great were their sins. And he says even the hypocrisy of their worship, God was simply fed up with. And so God speaks to this city. He speaks to this people. He speaks in terms of the judgment their sins deserved. And though they get broken up by messages of God's mercy to them, calling upon them to put away their iniquities, though your sins be as scarlet, be white as snow though they'll be red like crimson they'll be as wool we have all these promises of the graciousness of God the predominant note over and over and over again is the note of divine judgment comes in chapter 5 look at chapter 5 of the continual note of woes that come upon the people Look at verse 25 of chapter 5. Just picking out this list as an example of what you find throughout this whole chapter. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. The mountains quaked. Their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. And for all this, his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. And that becomes a refrain throughout this whole section. His anger is not turned away from all this. His hand is stretched out still. You look at it in chapter 10. Chapter ten and verse twenty-two. I know you got the messianic passages in the midst. I know you got Emmanuel. I know you got a child is born, a son is given, the government is upon his shoulders. I know you got the goodness of God. I know you got the salvation of God. But I want you to get the flavor of this reality that God is speaking these words of hope and promise and comfort and grace and salvation to a people under judgment. That's the point of it. Chapter ten and verse twenty-two. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer lean on him who struck them. You know, they were having confidence in their oppressors, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the anyone. They would trust anyone but God. And they would no longer lean upon those who struck them, those who eventually were the very ones that took them into captivity. But they instead will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel." A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, Israel, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of Israel will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. So salvation will come, yes, but it comes in the midst of judgment. That's the point. That's where it begins. There's that whole section of the first 12 chapters in which that note of God's word to Israel, His word to Judah, His word to Jerusalem, is announced to be a message of judgment against them for their violations of God's covenant. Now we have chapters that speak of God's word to a bunch of nations that surround Judah. His word to Babylon. His word concerning... Moab, This word concerning Philistia, the Philistines. This word concerning Damascus. They're called the oracles against the nations. God has words to speak about all the surrounding nations. Not just as covenant people. But those that surrounded them were to be also bringing, having judgment that will befall them. And yet in the midst of that, there's also the note of mercy. Mercy that will come to such an extent that in 19, it tells us that Israel is going to be third in the heart of God after Israel's traditional adversaries, the Egyptians and the Assyrians. They're going to take precedent. God's going to receive Assyrians. He's going to receive Egyptians as well as Israelites. And so mercy is found, but it's also found in the midst of the picture of judgment. So you have judgment upon Jerusalem. And upon Judah. Then you have judgment on all the surrounding nations. And maybe you're thinking, well, oh, wait a minute, what about the U.S.? What about other places not named? I think that's where this section of 24 to 27 comes in. Because you only have one nation that's named, everything else is not titled. There are no names. You say the names were. Uh, protected, uh, the names were uh, you know those mysteries where, where you hear the names were not named or, or changed to protect the innocent. Here the names were changed to accentuate the guilty really. It's not to protect the innocent it's to accentuate the guilty because in a real sense we should view ourselves we should view us being part of the earth dwellers those who dwell upon the face of the earth who have not honored God who have not served God, who have not pleased God, who have not sought God. We've lived for ourselves, we've lived for our own desires, our own ambitions, to please ourselves. We've been idolaters, we've worshipped things, we've worshipped money, we've worshipped ourselves. And the reality is that that is also bringing us under the displeasure of a God who says we're to be loving Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we're to be loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so the picture is that God brings a judgment upon the whole earth. In fact, some 16 times in chapter 24, the term earth is used of a judgment that comes upon the whole earth. See chapter 24 and verse 1? Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And as you read on, you begin to pick up that this language is a language that expresses, first of all, a return to conditions prior to the order of creation. In chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, it tells us that the earth was empty. It was desolate. It was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then God made a world in six days... For human habitation. For man to dwell in the presence of God. In the garden God planted for him. And to walk with God. And know God in a world made for the habitation of human beings. And yet man polluted his way upon the earth. And so you know what happened? A flood came in the days of Noah. And in the picture of the flood... There is this universal devastation that comes upon the whole earth. Just as you see it here. Much of the language is the language you see in the description of the flood. Verse 19 of chapter 24. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. Very much like the picture of the, of the earth being broken up. And the waters of the flood coming from beneath and coming from above. And all of the earth coming under the judgment of God. Except for family kept within an ark. Kept in safety. That's why in the reading of chapter 26 I mentioned the language of the ark being shut. And, the, and, and Noah and his family awaiting the judgment to come to an end. And out of that judgment comes what? Salvation. Comes A deliverance comes. A new creation. As Noah and his family are blessed of God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God brings about a new creation in the times of Noah. And that's what God does in the midst of his judgment. He grips the human heart with the recognition that in and of ourselves we're utterly broken. In and of ourselves we're incapable of bringing about any good. Again, all that writhing that we read that was going on. and What do they do? They bring... They give birth to wind. They give birth to emptiness. They give birth to nothing. We can't help ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. But the wonder of wonders is that on the backdrop of the judgment comes a God who says judgment is not to be the final word, death is not the end of the story, curse is not the final act in the play. God is a God of deliverance. God is a God of salvation. God is a God of blessing. And so God speaks to his people again anonymously, doesn't mention the names. We don't know the name of the mountain. we don't know the name of the city. We don't we can pretty much guess. He's talking of the Old Testament people of God. He's making allusions to God's presence with his people on Zion. He's making allusions to God's blessing upon a faithful city. But yet it's unnamed because this is perpetual truth for all nations, all peoples, for you and me today, here in Pine Bush, that we need to hear God's word addressing us. But not only addressing us, with our inability to bring any good in and of ourselves, for we're under judgment. Our sins deserve wrath we are people who are subject to death and yet in the midst of all of that God comes with his remedy God comes with his plan his purpose to do the world a world of good and what is the good God does? well first of all it's a word that speaks of divine presence when God would bring about a remedy for human sin you know what he does? he comes and he appears he makes himself known he appeared to Abraham and said, Come out of the Ur of the Chaldees, come to a place where I will show you. He comes to Israel at Mount Sinai. He makes his presence known and he offers his mercy and his goodness and his kindness and his love. And this God who comes in human history, this God who comes and speaks to Abraham, who speaks to Israel, is the God who ultimately and climactically comes in the person of Jesus. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God comes on this mountain. The mountains were the places where God usually made his presence known. It was where he met with Israel on Sinai. It's where he met with his people on Mount Zion, where the temple was built. Unto the hills I look up. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. That's one of the Ascent Psalms. As they went up to Jerusalem, to the temple, and they saw the surrounding hills, they thought of the God who transcends the hills, transcends the mountains, but the God who also meets with His people on Mount Zion, where He's commanded the blessing, even life everlasting. And so God comes in his own presence, even as Jesus came. And there were mountains associated with Jesus coming, wasn't it? true that he came and he was baptized into Jordan. He went into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days as Israel was tempted 40 years. And now what is he to do? But just like Israel, you see the mountain. He went up to a mountain and he spoke the words of the Sermon on the Mount. And then there was the mountain of transfiguration where his glory was revealed, his presence was made known. And even as he departed from his disciples in Matthew's Gospel, he said to meet him on that mountain in Galilee. And it was on that mountain in Galilee they met Jesus and they worshipped Jesus. And Jesus gives, gave them those words that evangelicals call, I don't know if it's an accurate description, but we do call it the words of the Great Commission, I think it's the great reality of what the churches will do and go, and being an international body of people to impact the nations for the gospel, to make disciples among the nations, to baptize and to teach. That was on a mountain. And Jesus met with his people as God often meets with his people upon a mountain. And so we have his presence. But not just a presence to speak words that intimidate, and words that make us tremble before him. Here's a mountain scene in which a feast is provided. There is plenty. A feast of rich food, it's described as being. A feast of well-aged wine. a rich food full of marrow. Wait a minute, is it going to clog your arteries? Well, I don't. wouldn't fear that. This is healthy food. This is abundant food. This is a gospel feast, a feast of good news, a feast of good things. Again, the passage begins in verse 1 where the prophet says, I will exalt you, I will praise you. You've done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. And part of those Wonderful things. Faithful things. Sure and certain things. Are the things that make up. The provisions of his grace. In Jesus. The provisions. Not only of presence but of standing in His presence, of being justified in His presence, of having access to that presence, of having our prayers heard before Him, of having our persons accepted, having His peace that passes all understanding fill our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, a rich abundance of food and blessings that come in communion with the living and the true God. Isn't it an amazing thing that our communion is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ, that we are brought into a relationship with God where we have freedom of access into his presence. The God in whose presence we would once have been too intimidated to ever come. Like Dorothy and the Cowardly Lion and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man standing before the presence of this fiery appearing, scowling, and horrific Wizard of Oz. And that's fiction. Imagine being in the presence of the God who brought the plagues upon the Egyptians. Imagine being in the presence of the God who appeared on Mount Sinai. Imagine being in the presence of the God who will judge the world in righteousness. And yet instead of that being an intimidating thought to us who are in Christ, it's a thought that brings great joy and delight that we are privileged to approach him we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. The one who died for us. The one who rose for us. The one who reigns for us. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. Making intercession for us. And we're given the freedom. We're given the liberty. We're given the boldness. We're given the joy of being able to approach Him. And know we're not going to be turned aside. We'll have His presence in the light. In joy and blessedness, in the provision of every good thing. No good thing will He withhold from them who walk uprightly. God has a remedy for the plight of man. He has a remedy for the judgment, for death that encompasses us and surrounds us and meets us in this world on a daily basis. He has a remedy. Because he's come in history. He's come in the person of Jesus. And he's come with blessing. He's come with plenty. He's come with provisions of his love and his kindness. But then there's another aspect to this remedy. And that, that is it's a remedy that provides a purging. A purgation of all that is Evil of all that is the consequences of sin in a fallen world. Hebrews 1 tells us, having purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus has taken away our guilt. He's taken away our sins. He's taken away every ground and basis for our judgment and our condemnation. That's what salvation is. It's receiving what not only we don't deserve, but the very opposite of what we deserved. We stood under judgment and we come under the realm of the saving rescue of Jesus, which has taken away all of the grounds for judgment. And look at what God does. It's the language of swallowing up. The first thing he says he swallows up on this mountain is the covering that is cast over the peoples. There is a pall. There is a dirge. There is a mourning and a weeping and a reality that in a fallen world trouble is on every hand danger is on every hand and sometimes we just don't know it sometimes we just don't recognize it I had a really sobering experience this morning don't ask me why this occurred but I took a turn on 52 right where the dollar general is and in my mind's eye it wasn't reality I wasn't seeing this but in my mind's eyes I made that turn to go east on route 52 I saw a blue car, like right above in my mind. Don't ask me why I saw this. And it looked like it was going right into my lane. I was going to smash with this blue car. I don't know where that that came from. But I was utterly sobered. And the realization how quickly one can die just came into my mind afresh. And I was determined from that point forward, I'm driving really, really carefully. Again, I don't know where that came from. I'm not saying it was a vision from God. I'm not laying any claim to anything, but it was my own imagination. But in my mind's eye, it put a fright into me. And it put the awareness into me that we don't often recognize how quickly things can change. How quickly life can be over. How quickly danger and devastation can come. We live in a troubled world and that pall of danger is all around us. But yet the prophet tells us that that covering that's cast over all peoples will be swallowed up. The veil that is spread over the nations. And that may be the veil of human blindness. and may be the veil of our inability to understand and appreciate who God is and what our relationship to God should be so that we walk in indifference. We walk without concern. We, we live as if life is granted to us forever. We have some kind of a, 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 a lease on life that's going to continue without end. And that blindness will be taken away. Paul speaks about the veil that's over the minds of the people who read the law, that when they turn to the Lord is taken away. God takes away the veil that keeps us from understanding. Reality is in truth. He takes away the covering that's cast over all the peoples living under the pall of the reality of sin and of death. And then it culminates. He will swallow up death. He will swallow up death. Forever. Forever. You might think of instances in the prophets where prophets actually raised people from the dead. Elijah and Elisha putting their bodies over the son of the woman of Zarephath and the Shunammite woman's son. And they rose from the dead. Life was breathed into them. And they came to life again. But the fact is that was not forever. Forever those young men died think of Lazarus four days in the tomb he stinks we're told and Jesus said Lazarus come forth and death gave up its dead only to capture it again but here's a swallowing up of death that's final, complete, everlasting forever Death no longer will come to haunt us. We'll no longer be in peril of death. Now I believe that much of what the Bible speaks about salvation is the restoration of what God formerly intended when He created us in the beginning. The restoration of communion with God in life. But still that was a relationship that humankind had with God in the Garden of Eden that was subject to change. And the great thing about Jesus' salvation is that condition of glory in God's presence in resurrected bodies and glorified souls will never, ever, ever be subject to change. So it's not just a restoration to the original state of things, it's a step up. It's the glory that we will be given by God in an unchanging reality of the presence of plenty of the purging of all evil and its attendant consequences and then it's a remedy that's accompanied by pity and compassion full of pity and of compassion. Look what it says. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. It doesn't just say, and tears will be wiped away, or Our hearts will be gladdened. It says the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. This is the personal presence and activity of the God of all grace the God of life and of glory will come to every human life that shed a tear and he will comfort us with his own personal presence wiping away every tear and giving joy forever unspeakable joy filled with glory that will never ever cease he knows our frame he knows we are dust he has compassion and pity for us that's a great statement that's made about Israel and Egypt is that the Lord took note of their afflictions they didn't go through afflictions without him caring, without God noting without God coming to them in the midst of their trials and their troubles. We see our troubles all too well, don't we? We're sensible of them. We desire them to leave in a hurry. But you know, I think God wants us to know that as He will one day manifest His care and His comfort and His consolations and His pity, and personally wiping away every tear from our eyes so he designs now, today in the midst of the troubles, hour to be the one we lean on to be the one we draw strength from, to be the one who we know is our comfort and our help to know in the midst of trouble whatever we lack, we have God with us we have a God who cares for us who will never forsake us great blessing of First Romans 8 begins on the, upon the note of no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus all this judgment stuff we read about in the gospel and in the Old Testament through the gospel of Christ is done away no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus and do you know how it ends? it ends on the note of no separation there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord nothing nothing not tribulation not death itself nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord that's God's remedy folks it's a remedy that's full and complete and adequate to the need and nothing else meets this need nothing else meets this need that arises out of our genuine condition and sin our genuine exposure to the reality of divine displeasure because of sin everything else that people offer is just a band-aid upon a, a gaping wound that will never heal only the God of light, of light and life can come and put a remedy that's complete and full upon the troubles that afflict us as a result of sin a remedy that involves his presence that provides us with plenty that purges all evil from our hearts inwardly and the world outwardly a remedy in which God meets us with the fullness of his pity and with his compassion I should just leave it there and say, how should you think you should respond to such a blessing as this? (laughs) And I hope we'll get on target as to what the answer should be. But just in case you're not caught on, Isaiah's going to give you the words. He'll say, here's the script. Here's what you should be saying. It will be said on that day. What really you should be saying now, Because these blessings are not just future. These blessings are present. These These blessings are here now in a crucified and risen Jesus. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. And the reality is, we've not waited in vain, he's come. He's come in His Son. He's come with His presence in Jesus. He's come with plenty in Jesus. He's come with purging of evil in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He comes with the fullness of pity and compassion in a merciful and gracious High Priest who knows where we are and sympathizes with us and meets us in our need. We've waited for Him and we have received what we've waited for and the result of it all let us be glad let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation now well, folks we're realists we know we live in a troubled world we read the headlines we, we see the devastations that take place we see the reality of death that is in the world we see that how it's hit uh, schools with shootings. We've seen how how it's hit with tornadoes that have devastated uh, uh, cities and, 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 and towns. We've seen the reality of bombs raining from the heavens upon Ukraine. We've seen the reality of genocide in many places of the world. We've seen the cruelty that people can do to others. We've seen the troubles that just exist in a fallen world and we're not blind to it but the great reality of Christianity is that's not all we see we see a God who's intervened in human history we've seen a God who in the face of what judgments our sins deserve has come with the gospel remedy has come with that complete and full remedy At least in this point, it's not without the reality of sin's presence and implications of sin's penalty still that exists in the world at large. But yet the hope is that in the midst of it all, we have a God who has made us to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we should be a people glad, a people that know the Lord, in the midst of the trials and troubles of this life. You know, Paul can say, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We say, sure, that's right, we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but all the troubles of the present hour. And Paul goes on to say, and we also rejoice in our tribulations, our pressures, our troubles, our afflictions. We rejoice now. And he says this is because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And he tells us, we reckon that the sufferings of the present hour are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. The Old Testament knew of resurrection faith. The whole Bible testifies to resurrection faith, to a God who swallows up death in life, the God who meets us in our neediness and supplies abundantly all of our needs through our Lord Jesus. Let us rejoice and be glad in him. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for our great Lord and Savior. We're thankful for his victory over sin and over death and that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We pray that those realities would Resonate within our hearts, even in the extremities of life, even in the troubles of life, that we would know a present God, a God filled with blessings, a God who is rich in goodness, a God who comforts us in our troubles, a God who heals the wounds of our hearts and who makes us new. So, hear our prayers, give us joy unspeakable and full of glory as we behold not just the terrible things that occur in this world, but the great thing you've done in this world, in the sending of Jesus, and in the mighty work of grace and salvation that is found in him. Hear our prayers as we ask this in his name. Amen.